Welcome to this edition to Voices of Experience. My name is Paul Casey, along with producer Benny Mathers. Shantae Young, co-host of The Way with Jazz and Tay, which, by the way, airs on KKNW on Thursday mornings at 7 a.m., will be asking me questions about whether self-employment is a step you may want to consider now or in the future. I have written a couple of books on the subject. The latest version is Self-Employment for You is available on Amazon. It's also headlined Pre-Flight Checklist because I believe you should go through a very similar checklist that pilots do before they take off before you start your own business, if that makes sense. Now, my goal in the book is not to try to talk you into or out of starting your own business. It's just to put you in the driver's seat to make that determination for yourself. So, if you finish the book and say, wow, I can do this, let's get started. Or, after finishing the book, you may say, this is not for me. I feel the book has then succeeded on both counts. Also included in this book is what I call the self-employment quiz. There are 20 questions. The higher you score on that quiz, the higher your prospects for success. It just takes about five minutes or so. And you can also take the test if you do not want to, uh, let's say, buy the book, which I hope you do. But if you just want to go right to the quiz, visit VoicesOfExperience.com, and you can then take the quiz there. Now, what's Voices of Experience all about? I talk with people with experience in public affairs, travel, fitness, education, special events, and with a very special emphasis on entrepreneurship. There's very little theory on this show. I like to talk with people who have experienced what they are talking about firsthand. Joining me right now is a gentleman by the name of Uncle John. At least that's the name he uses for his book. His actual name is Gordon Jobna. His book is called The Greatest No on Earth, a book of curiosities, rarities, and amazing oddities. And it's in its 33rd edition. I have enjoyed stories like this my entire life because of the nature of the types of books they are, and they highlight unintended consequences that are based on reality. History is so full of amazing achievements that are factual. That's why I don't comprehend all of these conspiracy theories and things that people are trying to pull out of space or left field. Just look at what really happened, and I think that is jaw-dropping enough. So let's get started. I first asked Uncle John to describe the contents of his book. Two different kinds of stories. We have have just the quick hits, the short ones, and then the slightly longer ones. I mean, in this book, one of the ones that I love is um, the story of a guy named uh, Frank Watlington, who was an engineer uh, working for the Navy. He was stationed in Bermuda, and it was his job to listen to the ocean. In other words, he had what they call a hydrophone, which is a microphone that was submerged, and he listened for enemy activity, possible enemy activity, submarines and ships and that were not visible. So was this like during World War uh, II or something? This was in the 50s, 1950s. Got it. After after World War II. Cold War. And he st- Cold War exactly. He started hearing not just human noises, but he heard some other noises, clicking and and growling and howling and he did not know what they were. And he put together a tape of just, he, he was recording everything. So he put together a, a tape of just those weird sounds. And though he couldn't talk about his mission, couldn't talk about his work because it was classified, he did bring that tape 
to to some fishermen and asked them if they knew what it was. And they said, oh, yeah, that's whales. Now, up to that time, it was not common knowledge that whales uh, made noises that were uh, what we now think of as songs. And um, in fact, what they thought, what, what it was, sailors knew about these sounds, but they thought it was the ghosts of sailors who died at sea. Um, I mean, we're talking centuries back, but now they knew these, these modern fishermen knew that they were whales. They knew that because they heard them at the same time they knew the whales were in the area. So uh, this guy, Wadlington, uh, just kept the information to himself because it was really, he wasn't allowed to talk about it. But then in 1967, he met um, a guy who uh, was doing research on whales, and he said to the guy, well, you know, they, they sing. And the guy had never heard that before. And this guy doing research, he, he was there doing research because he knew that whales were being hunted to extinction and he wanted to gather more information about them. So Wellington gave this guy, Payne is his name, gave him the tape and the guy starts listening to it. And he says, here's patterns and things repeat, it sounds repeated. And he re- realized that they, they were actually what we call singing, but they were communicating. So he wanted to raise awareness of the plight of, of whales. So his idea was to take this, this tape of the whale songs and make a record out of it, what we now call vinyl. It, it was a big success. They sold 100,000 copies, which is still the record for any nature recording. But also, National Geographic agreed to include a flexi disc of the songs of the humpback whales in all of its editions for one one month, all of its international editions. A flexi disc for those who either don't know or don't remember, it's one of those, it's sort of plastic coated paper uh, that was, that could be played on a record player, on a phonograph. Oh, I vaguely uh, remember they, they that. Yeah, for, I, I got that. Yeah, yeah, put it, yeah they used them sometimes on the back of cereal yes. boxes. Yeah, exactly. They pressed 10.5 million of them, which is, they still holds the record as the largest single uh, pressing of, of a, a recorded you know, a record. So uh, that actually did. The amazing thing is it actually did make people aware of the plight of whales, in particular humpback whales, and it helped get people on board, curb whale hunting. And result is that humpbacks in particular, all whales are, have come back somewhat, but, but humpbacks in particular went from a po- worldwide population of, it was down to about 7,000. It's now up to over 80,000. So it's a big, oh. big, big success, and that's the reason. See, that's why I love stories like that. I mean, unintended consequences, but to the positive. You start out doing something different, and then it turns into something entirely different. And in this case, it's very positive. That's great. That's, that's really exactly. interesting. Exactly. I'm also struck by we took to the 1950s into the 60s that this became the issue. You would have thought it would have been a lot sooner than that, at least initially. My thought was on that, that people would have had heard whales singing or talking before, but it really wasn't that long ago. Can you give another story that you um, would like to highlight? I love the little ones, you know, the, the lucky finds, the kid the guy that found the, uh, he was cleaning out his, his mother's attic and he found a, a Christmas present that had never been wrapped from 1988 and it was in a bag with the receipt so he knew that that it was it cost $38 when it was new and it was a video game still in its wrapper it was called Kid Icarus and he did some research and found that it was very rare and very and a cult classic 
or, or desired anyway, and he was able to sell it. Remember, it was sold for he, he was purchased for thirty eight dollars. He sold it for nine thousand dollars. Wow. Uh, we have lots of stories like that. And I love those. Or a little bit more in depth about a guy named William Mitchell, who was a food scientist for uh, General Foods, and they acquired the Kool Aid brand. And uh, Mitchell was. Uh, given the job of finding a way to uh, make carbonated Kool-Aid. The idea was that it would compete with Pepsi or other sodas. They could offer a less expensive alternative to soda pop. And uh, he was able to come up with a couple of solutions. His first one was carbonated ice cube. He found a way to trap carbon dioxide in the ice cubes and keep it in there until the ice cube was dropped into water, which time it would be released into the water and you'd have a soda. Uh, only problem was that it had to be frozen at 14, had to be kept at 14 degrees Fahrenheit. And in supermarkets, the managers very often turned the cooling down on, on their freezing freezer compartments. They, they changed it to just below freezing, like 30 uh, 30 degrees, which is fine for frozen foods, but it's not fine for frozen ice cubes with the carbon dioxide and that, and they all melted. So that had to go out. So he came up with another solution and that is pop rocks. If you remember those, that I candy. Do. I do. You put those in your mouth and they a little kind snack. of that little tinge and kind of like alive in your mouth. The first time you do it, you're like, what did I just do? Yeah. Well, in fact, that was the re- reaction to uh, people at, at uh, General Foods. They thought, and they spit it out. But he thought it was great, and he continued to make small batches and give them out at parties. He called it atomic candy, and he gave it out at parties, and that was it. One day he he gave some to a, uh, a guy who was the head of the Canadian arm of uh, General Foods, and that guy thought it was fantastic. And he built a section of his factory devoted just to making uh, Pop Rocks. But he didn't want to sell them. He wanted to give them away as a promotion with uh, potato chips and pretzels. And kids started chasing the, the delivery trucks, and they realized they had a hit on their hand. And so they went into production, and uh, they had two things against them. They did sell a lot, but it didn't uh, last for a long time. And one of the reasons is urban legend started about a kid who uh, had a couple of bags of Pop Rocks and washed it down with a with a bottle of soda and exploded. Oh, and then that rumor got linked to... Uh, the kid who was the uh, spokesperson for Life Cereal. You remember Mikey? Yeah, I do. Everybody remembers that one. Mikey, yeah. yeah. He likes it. And so that was the the rumor was that that he died from from, uh, Pop Rocks. And so it wasn't true, but they couldn't shake the urban legend. And then the other thing that happened was that they they assumed – that they could, they didn't have a lot of, uh, General Foods didn't have a lot of experience with candy, but they assumed that they could do with candy what they did with other products, which is – extend the line they could first start with pop rocks and then they'd have a a powdered version and then they'd have a a chocolate version and a chewing gum version and that's not how it worked it was a novelty they didn't understand that it was a novelty that's only half the story the other half of the story is that the guy william mitchell who invented this invented some other things he invented cool whip and he also invented tang uh instant beverage and he had some flops one of his flops was called uh was powdered alcohol and it wasn't a flop because he was unsuccessful in making it. He made it. Um, and it was apparently you add this powder to water and it turns it into, into like vodka. Uh, but it's illegal. It was made illegal in every state in the country uh, because they were afraid of, I don't know, it was going to be a, like a people were going to snort it or something like that. They were afraid, so they just made it illegal. Too. Yeah. And the thing about uh, some of those products he turned out, I remember Tang from the 1960s, mm-hmm. where it was part of the space program. That's what the astronauts drink, right? That's right. Yeah, so you got a little right. boost from that. 
Yes, indeed. I, I never liked Tang that much myself. I don't know about you, but I agree with you. I, I did. It. I tried it, but uh, yeah, I, I kind of agree. It was probably good that the men who went to space had it there, but yeah. doing it back on Earth for any length of time. I don't even know if do they still have Tang? Is it still out there in the shelves? I don't know. That's yeah. a good question. See, there you go. Trivia. Your next research. Question. Yeah, exactly. Well, I yeah. really uh, enjoyed the book. A couple more tidbits, and then I'll let you go. Oh, uh, well, this is kind of timely. Um, we have a, a couple of pages of what we call misconceptions. They are things that are commonly thought, and uh, they're not true. Urban legend. Um, or, did I? or myths. Urban, uh, Black Friday. I always thought that it was called Black Friday because it's the day when retailers are most profitable and their uh, ledgers actually go into the black. They actually show a profit at this, you know, on that day. But that's not why it, uh, why it's called Black Friday. It's called Black Friday because uh, what well, goes back to the 1950s again, in Philadelphia, police came up with the term because they, that was the day that the day after Thanksgiving was the traditional day for the uh, Army, Navy college football game. And it was held in Philadelphia, which meant they, the cops had to work overtime and not only did they have to work overtime, but they had to manage these crowds of, of crazy sports fans and deal with the with the suburbanites that were coming into the city to do their shopping and spend their holidays. And so they gave it the name Black Friday, and it stuck. But what's the di- difference between apple juice and apple cider? I thought that was kind of interesting. And the answer is that cider is the liquid that you squeeze out of apples. That includes what we commonly think of as pulp has little bits of pulp. It's filtered, but it's not, but they leave little bits of sediment in there and that's called cider. If they filter it all out and pasteurize it, then it's apple juice. All right. Well, there's a ton of these in there. There's one that I read. It's kind of macabre, I guess, but it's about death. I was reading one and I'm just, I'm not looking at it now, but like Mark Twain, said something, you know, if you're scared of death, you haven't lived a full life, something like that. And I'm going, boy, when I get you on the phone, I'm going to tell you one that I read very recently. And it's and then go all ahead. of a sudden I go down one or two from that oh, and I it see it. And it's the one that I just heard recently and it's about death. And it says you die twice. You die physically once. And then the last time is when the last person utters your name. And I was going to say, when I got mm. you on the phone... I'm going to tell you that one. And sure enough, it was right there, the next or two down from the Mark Twain quote. The book is called Uncle John's Greatest No on Earth, and it is available on Amazon. Now, this interview did not do the book justice. Again, if you're interested in strange historical events and twists based on reality, this book is really for you. Coming up in just a moment, Shantae Young talks with me about what you should consider before going into business for yourself. You're listening to Voices of Experience with Paul Casey. If you have questions, comments, or topics that you would like to suggest for future shows, call Paul at 206-714-8154. That's 206-714-8154. In your book, you reference find a niche and solve a problem to increase your prospects for success. Could you expand on that a little bit? 
Yeah, I'm really glad you asked me that question because it really goes to the core of what I submit about what it takes to be a successful entrepreneur. It's probably one of the most important fundamental concepts that I strongly believe that someone has to grasp. Let me give some uh, examples here. On my radio show a couple years ago, I was doing the show Is Self-Employment for You? And I had a call from someone from Southern California. And that was interesting. I don't know how they got to the show, but they came on it. And um, he was talking about uh, his passion was to start a t-shirt shop in Venice Beach. And I think, I don't know if he had religious sayings he wanted to have on the shirt or something else. My immediate reaction, having been in Venice Beach several times, is the last thing that they need is another t-shirt shop in Venice Beach. I mean, mm -hmm. I, last time I was there, I saw t-shirts selling three for five dollars. And that's kind of like, you really want to build a business on that. So yeah. I asked him, yeah, I asked him then, what do you do for a living now? And he said, I'm a UPS driver. Where? And he said, Santa Ana. And I said, okay. Now, let me assume that you know probably Santa Ana and the back alleys and streets better than anybody having your job. And he said, yeah, basically. And I said, well, why don't you think about staying in the business you have a core competency with? And here's a niche you may want to consider. And that is starting a service, like a small bus service. You get one of those little coaches and maybe uh, can seat maybe 15, 20 people. And you go around and pick people up and deliver them to their appointments. For example, a statistic is that um, the baby boomers and are called the sandwich generation. And that is they're raising kids, they're raising their kids' kids in many instances, and they have aging parents. They have a lot of balls in the air. So for example, you provide a service that could take an aging parent to a doctor's appointment and do things like this. Start kind of a concierge service that way. Maybe call it concierge and you do door-to-door -door pickups and things like that. And you have now established something that you already have knowledge in you have a real lay of the town. You know where everything's at. So that's how I believe you are thinking like an entrepreneur. And then you are trying to solve that problem. And that's the way you think right. all the time going forward. Mm, that's amazing advice um, and a really great example. So I would like to talk about, I think there's this thought or this concept that there is a freedom that you're allowed when you start your own business. Um, but that may not be necessarily true because, you know, you have to work for your survival. Um, do you believe that self-employment can uh, provide people with a sort of flexibility or freedom that working corporate or an, a regular nine to five can't? Yes, I do. And I think that 80% of the people who go into their own business for themselves are doing just that. They want to control their destiny as much as they possibly can. And that's why they take this step. And that's what I'm submitting is, is that why you want to choose a business that will increase your prospects for success. And that is being in love with the idea and your passion, being an entrepreneur. I'm Paul Casey. I'm an entrepreneur. I'm Paul Casey, who happens to be doing a radio show now. But also before, I was doing uh, newspaper publishing. And that was back in the 80s and 90s. But 
I could see the market was dwindling for publications going forward. And it's not something mm -hmm. that I felt I wanted to continue because I think the market would dwindle. I make myself, uh, let's say, having more foresight than I really had because basically I didn't like publishing. But I found the opportunity going over and moving what I was doing then. It was called Voices of Experience, radio show like I have now. But I moved it over or from the newspaper over to the radio. The costs were a lot less of paying for a radio time. It was a lot easier and my profit doubled by doing that. So what mm. I'm submitting is that an entrepreneur, you always have to have your eyes and ears open to that. You cannot be focused on this is the way I'm going to do this. You have to pivot, you have to change. But what doesn't change is that this real desire to have this freedom. And I would say that if you give it a real hard three to five years that you're working more hours, you are working weekends, but three to five years, then you just start tip over to the other side where now you're getting that freedom that you desire. You get that extra time. You can pretty well do now what you want to do and you're controlling your destiny. That's a long way of getting there, but I do believe that you do get that freedom and that's exactly why most people do this. Earlier, you said something about passion. So um, I know that you have a different take on the phrase, follow your passion and the money will come. Can you tell us a little bit more about what, um, what your take is on that? Simply being an entrepreneur, that's what you want to do. My name's Paul Casey. I'm an entrepreneur who happens to be doing this. Another example of someone who thinks like an entrepreneur was a woman. I think she was from Portland, Oregon. And um, she was an attorney. And she was having a child, so she went on maternity leave. And she was looking for stencils for the baby's room. And she was out shopping for them. And she found that she didn't really find what she wanted. And then secondly, it was really expensive. So the short mm -hmm. of it is, she started a mail order stencil service for mothers, fathers, whatever, having a baby. And they could stencil their own rooms. They did it a lot cheaper, a lot less money because she kept her eyes and ears open. And that's what I'm saying is that if you're thinking like an entrepreneur, you may have a challenge that confronts you. And if you have that challenge, then mm -hmm. you can start thinking other people have this challenge too. And that's what she did. And she left her job at the law firm and she's making a very good living, staying at home with her child, which is what she wanted to do. And her stencil business is going incredibly well. But that was not a passion of hers growing up. I want to start a stencil company. And I say that 99% right. of the people who are successful and you read about later are the ones who think like that. Jeff Bezos never for a moment mm. thought that he was going to do an online service, which he provided for books and now all things that you can possibly imagine can be delivered to your door. He wasn't thinking that when he was in his early 20s. He kept his mind open. Right. You see, that's the key, is to keeping your mind open to those opportunities. That's how entrepreneurs really succeed. They see something, they see an opening. It doesn't have to be a new concept. They just kind of, um, let's say, for example, they're a good handyman, they're good in construction. They want to build homes or build units or things like that. Well, maybe if you are looking at doing that, 
you build homes that are accessible for aging parents or aging individuals. That's your specialty. That's how entrepreneurs think. I love that. So something I wanted to know, and it it may seem uh, strange because I feel like once you kind of launch into a business, you may, you're not stuck with it, but you at least have to see it out for that first year. So what I wanted to know is how someone may uh, test out the waters or just kind of see if self-employment is for them before actually, you know, launching the business and, and putting, you know, maybe their whole life savings into it. On one hand, mm-hmm. I believe if you're doing this, you should be all in and you should give it a right. year and you should have the money to be able to do that. Keep your overhead extremely low. So start a business that you can start in your apartment. Well, my concept is basically what I write about in the book. I get you to the three to five year mark. And that's about where I feel I'm capable of giving advice to people to going into business for yourself. And if you want to expand and bring partners in and do all these other things and go into a big office space after five years, good for you. I never did that, mm-hmm. so I can't advise you on what to do there, bringing in, as I say, partners, board of directors, or whatever. Mine is the sole entrepreneur that you keep it tight into yourself or keep as close to your vest as possible. You don't have partners. And the reason I talked to Jasmine about that the last time we spoke is that when you have a partner, basically you've just given half your business away, 50% of it. So if you can't do this on your own, then that's a question that I'm submitting. Maybe self-employment is not for you. How did you specifically find like the time to do that? Where you said you were still working at your job while you started your business or did you just kind of um you crossed over completely without having any overlap yeah i uh remember when i was doing it i was setting up the structure i was getting the computers i was getting the office space which was free by the way and i got it free because i was at a publishing company at the time that said if you print your newspaper here we'll give you free office space upstairs and i said great now it was a rat hole it was it shook when the presses were going (laughs) But okay, who cares? <laughs> and, and, and people who weren't right. in business, oh, that's another thing. Don't listen to people who've never run a business before, like your aunt and uncle, this is what you do. They may be great people, but only listen to people who run their own business. And I remember people telling me, you need to get a car and be very impressive when you take your clients out to lunch, have a this wonderful vehicle and, and, and do all these things. But then you find that when you're out selling, which is what you're doing as an entrepreneur, you, in this, these times, and I'm sure they're hopefully going to return sooner than later, you'll go out and visit with them eyeball to eyeball, but you go to their office. They're not coming to yours, number one, okay? Right. Number two, uh, a, a great vehicle to show how successful you are, that's all smoke and mirrors. Uh, one time, right. there was someone coming in that I wanted to impress in a car because I had a rat hole of a car you know basically and um i went out and rented a car at SeaTac airport and picked him up in a really nice car and it cost me 99 bucks for the day i didn't have 600 dollar or 400 dollar overhead spending money on a, on a leased car or something like that and people who were working for corporations were telling me what i need to do you have to block those people out talk to people who run their business and whatever you're yeah. going into Talk to people who are about 10 years ahead of you, and they'll be very generous with their time. I'd be very surprised if successful people won't say, Shante, sit down here, and this is what I'll tell you what you need to do. 
That's all the time we have for this edition to Voices of Experience. My thanks to Shantae Young for those great questions regarding self-employment and to Uncle John for being here to talk about his book, Uncle John's Greatest No on Earth. And it is available on Amazon. It's a great read. It, you can pick it up anytime and just get some really stunning facts and figures about the country, again, based on reality. Well, the final hurdle has been cleared as the electors cast their votes that will put a legal end, at least, to the continued lies about this election being stolen. Fueled, of course, by the chief of lies himself. Unfortunately, the divisions will only deepen as we try to move forward. Now, I've been hard on a lot of Republicans and Republican office holders for the last several years, and for good reason, I think. But it's also important to point out when some individuals stand up to the popular wave of trying to distort reality. And let's start with the secretaries of state who stood up to Trump in many states, led by our own Kim Wyman. Also, the U.S. Supreme Court, three appointees by Trump and six total Supreme Court appointees by Republicans over the last 20 years. So six out of the nine are now Republican appointees. And by Mark Milley, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. So in the final analysis, our system did work. I think we all found out, though, that democracy is on life support, and we all have learned that it's such a gift that we have, but it can be taken away. So we have to remain vigilant. My name is Paul Casey, and along with producer Benny Mathers, we would like to thank you for listening. Quote of the week. Well done is better than well said. Benjamin Franklin. And finally, always remember this. Experience is our best teacher.